I'm Randy Rohde, and I'm fascinated with entrepreneurs and small business owners. Plus, I love baseball. Every show, I sit down with a small business owner, and we discuss their running the bases of entrepreneurship. We throw the ball around on strategy, management, execution, and innovation. Plus, a little fun baseball talk. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Settle in, grab your Cracker Jacks, and you know what they say. Play ball! And it's a great day for a ball game. Hey, thanks for joining us. This is Randy Rohde with Running the Bases with Small Businesses. And today, our guest, he's quite something, actually. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's found his passion at the intersection of technology and e-commerce. Born and raised in Israel, he's a software engineer by trade, receiving a BS in computer science from HIT Israel. In 2002, he relocated to New Jersey, that's quite a hop, to lead a major financial project for Toys R Us, networking their physical stores around the globe with headquarters. This project coincided with the beginnings of online e-commerce. Our guest strategized and led Toys R Us's word technical integration with Amazon. And then since his departure from Toys R Us, he has launched and sold multiple e-commerce businesses and has consulted with companies in the wholesale, retail, and e-commerce verticals. He's pretty good at what he does. He was awarded the winner of the 2013 Most Innovative Web Store by Amazon. And in 2018, he founded his latest company, Home Roots, and for the past four years has been combining his passion for furniture, e-commerce, and technology to disrupt the B2B furniture wholesale platform. Very excited. Please welcome to the show, Gil Bar Lev. Randy, my pleasure being here today with you. Thank you very much for your very kind words during the introduction. Wow. You know, you're pretty impressive. I, I'm going to, I want to hit you up about that Amazon award. But first, I have to ask because my kids were like, really? He was with Toys R Us. And I'm like, well, I think on the, you know, I don't know if he was an actual employee of Toys R Us. He did a lot of work for Toys R Us. And they're like, did he meet Jeffrey? I did. Actually, I did. Yes. So their headquarters used to be about 20 minutes drive from where I used to live. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I used to go there every time. And Jeffrey was at the entrance, obviously, into their into their uh, its headquarters, which yeah. was huge headquarters. In it was in Wayne, New Jersey. Yeah. And then of course within the building itself, as you move between the buildings, uh you would see it. You would see, <laughs> <laughs> you would see the puppet everywhere. You'd right? see Jeffrey. Jeffrey, you'll see Jeffrey and also every almost every Cubicle used to have a short, you know, small version of a puppet of, of Jeffrey to the giraffe. Oh my gosh. Um, How fun. Yeah, laying my, out there. Yeah. Was, my kids love Jeffrey. Yeah. yeah. Kids. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so that was probably quite the experience, I think, with Toys R Us at that time. And they still live. I, I was, you know, when you were coming on, I wanted to go like, you know, I know I've read something even more recent. And I think just Within the last couple of months, they've announced a partnership with Macy's to set up boutique shops in the Macy's stores. You can still shop at Toys R Us online. I don't know if some of your 
handiwork is still amidst the code of of what you see online at the moment. But what was that experience like doing work for Toys R Us, especially at that time when e-commerce was really starting to balloon? Yes. So, so first, I'll I'll touch upon the fact that I'm I'm actually I, I heard about the news with Macy's, and it's funny because I had the same conversation with my uh, with my wife a couple of weeks back about how us as kids, you know, it's very sad actually. As many different retail stores are, you know, vanishing yeah from, from the world, and and it's a sad because I do remember for us as kids, and as we you know grew up, and even in Israel we used to have Toys R Us. We had that shopping experience, you know, when you go into a toy store, and you had this wow effect of having all those games, activities, and everything. Sure. It's so wow. And now we're we're looking, and I have kids, I have three kids, um, and and you know looking back at them, they're missing some of that experience, mm-hmm. right? Or I'm thinking about the future kids, right? It's not the same. Some. You know, the world is evolving, but still you have this legacy thoughts or, you know, you, you pray for something that was there in a past experience of touching the goods, playing with them, shaking the boxes a little bit, figure out maybe what's there, what's the lights are. It's missing. So I'm actually very happy for them doing this partnership with Macy's. Uh, I will candidly admit that my uh, doing with them back in the day, I doubt that it's Still alive. I would love to say that it is, but I don't think so. Yeah, I would doubt that too. Just knowing how technology evolves. I, yeah, I doubt. So, yeah. um, but the experience was, I tell you what, so my my first experience with them was more, actually was not even related to more of the e-commerce. It was really more related on the financial space of things and how do you really put together stores from different places in the world together mm. in a one single financial system, which was a very challenging task. You can imagine different mm. currencies, different way of payments, different economies, languages, cultures, the way that they see money. And it's it's very much different than how you track that. But then I was lucky enough that my, my manager at that time was very happy and very entrepreneur in spirit. I'll submit it again, again, in opposed to some other leadership members of the leadership team. But he actually was pushing me for innovation for towards of us. So what else can mm-hmm. be done in in the e-commerce world? Now they were very hesitant to move forward by themselves or to open up their own dot-com store, which is something that later on they've done. But at, but at the beginning, they were very hesitant and they were looking to find a different way to get engaged. Again, that was post uh, the bubble that burst, you know, in the 2000s and every, and the internet. Everybody was pretty much afraid about this, what's going to happen. And even though I started a little bit later, but, you know, the trauma was already there. Right. So the experience was, tell you what, to work there with the people, it was amazing. Amazing experience. You can imagine you have toys all over the place. Yeah, oh yeah. And I'm not kidding. It literally toys all over the place. You can't, you can't even be, uh, you know, <laughs> it's hard to get into an argument where, where Jeffrey's looking at you from the back of the person or to, you know, you have another <laughs> candies, you know, walking around in, in the building. It, it's, it's hard a, to get. It's a feel <laughs> good. Yeah. Yeah. It's very tough. But, but on the other hand, it was an amazing experience for me because I got an opportunity to pretty much, uh, do something from scratch yeah. that they did not have any any touch with up to that point, which is to reach out to Amazon, getting it, getting it with getting the the the, the contact person, get this project, this partnership 
up and running and leading that partnership up to the point that it got matured. Mm. And it was also a good experience for me on a couple, multiple reasons. One, because I learned a lot of things from Amazon. Right. right? I don't need to tell you, Amazon does a lot of good things. <laughs> I don't always have love relationship with Amazon, but they do a lot of things right. They're a and good I'm friend going, to have, right? In the e-commerce yeah, business. Good, you don't want them as your enemy. <laughs> yes. I can tell you that. But, you know, it's a, I've learned a lot of techniques of work from them and the way that they think and the way that they approach. And definitely there's a lot of learning mm. that I have from, from that engagement. And the thing is that really exposed me into the e-commerce world where I knew a lot about internet development, you know, intranet development. That's why I was pretty much tasked with that. So they knew right. that I'm... I know how to build websites. I know how to do all that. That was really my specialty. But e-commerce was like the next level. Right. And so I got myself engaged in that, learned a lot of things. And I will say that I'm very thankful for those times because without that, what I've been doing in the past 20 years most likely would have never happened. Yeah. Well, tell us about tell us about the that incredible award. So this is, you know, going back like nine years or so. But I would think, you know, to be recognized by Amazon in 2013, because by that point, they were beast to, to reckon with, right? You know, and for you to be recognized as having the most, what was the, I have to go back exactly to most title innovative. that most innovative web store out of all of the web stores that had to be out there at that time. And what an incredible recognition. And really a testament to your talent and vision, I guess. What are, what were some, I guess, what made it so innovative at the time? Yeah. So, so first, thank you for that. So I'll give, I'll give the audience a little bit of a background. What was the web store? But Amazon around 2011, 12, 13, thinking even up to maybe the fifth, 2015, if I'm not mistaken with, with the dates, they used to have that technology that they can launch you can launch a website that sits on their platform, like similar to what Shopify is today or BigCommerce, right, but right. Amazon actually did something similar to that to whoever sold on Amazon at that time and also whoever wanted to sell online but wanted to use Amazon infrastructure, right? So I wanted to obviously have my own website at that time, I wanted to push you know, merchandise to the consumer. So I came on board to Amazon. But because of my experience in the past with Amazon, you know, a decade earlier and my own experience in e-commerce and I helped different brands, I actually found myself continuously working with their tech team side by side by introducing more and more features mm. that actually got implemented throughout, you know, different iterations. Right. And I, I think they recognized me at some point as the person who maybe have fed them with the most amount of feedback and features and things that eventually rolled out to my own website at that time that they said, okay, there's, there's something going on here. And I pretty much had an open dialogue with for close to two and a half, three years mm. just on that web store. And I was there like, well, they had open channel of communication, feature request, everything. And pretty much they acted almost like an open door, like, an, like, you know, I had, and immediate access right. to their technological and business development team and features were rolled out and deployed relatively quickly based on the feedback that I kept on giving them. And I kept on doing that for two plus, two and a half years. And I think that's really what triggered that. Again, it was built upon 
some of the relationship that I built a decade earlier with Toys R Us. Sure. Many people kind of moved that along and that's, uh, I think that's what triggered that eventually. And one day they came forward and said, okay, we'll give that a word. Yeah. That you add something to the marketplace. So. Well, good for you. Congratulations. Man. Yeah, no kidding. That is awesome. Um, I am curious. So was the web store that you had at that point, I'm imagining it had to be successful because I can't imagine that they would continue to, <laughs> yes. you, know, you know, support you if you were selling something crazy and weren't selling anything. So it had to have been a great successful venture for you. Are Do you still have that particular venture or have you... Oh, that that particular venture I exited. Okay. I sold out my my part of it. Amazon also in time have I think around 2015 or 16, a little bit later, they sunset this technology. They actually moved moved right. out to something else, and they move it to be all part of their AWS, like a part right. of the bigger bigger thing. And they kind of sunset this one specifically. They move to something else, but that was. The business at that time was houseware. Mm. So I got a lot of experience in the housewares, a little bit of things for the home, the core. We were helping different brands. Nice. Yeah, get their yeah. presence online. It was, it was an amazing experience for me personally. A lot of what's called DTC, like direct-to-consumer yeah. um, sales. And actually, that was what planted the idea at the beginning for what I've been doing since 2018, which is home roots. Home roots, yeah. Yeah, very exciting. So you grew up in Israel. I am curious, always interested with entrepreneurs and a little bit of their background, because I'm always wondering, is there a common gene, right? Some kind of genetic code that's in individuals that make them entrepreneurs, make them successful entrepreneurs. Did you come from an entrepreneurial family? Not necessarily. My two parents, my parents were CPAs. I came from a very standard family. <laughs> <laughs> parents that are CPAs, two bro- were four brothers. I'm the youngest. So okay. two of my brothers are lawyers and another one is a police officer slash also some type of a CPA. All right. He's doing CPA on the side. Uh, very standard Nothing. <laughs> I won't say anything as entrepreneur <laughs> in that in, in that space. Okay. Um, but I was always uh, I was always fascinated with coding, uh, with software development. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've done when I was maybe ten years old, eleven years old, maybe even earlier than that. That I wrote different programs in BASIC. I was just going to ask you at that time. What language? My son loves coding. That's where he is going to pursue a career. And, you know, he's learning all different kinds of codes now. They have so many different things that I'm like, I've never even heard of that. (laughs) But, you know, in in the day, it was, you know, basic C++ and, you know, Pascal. Pascal Yeah. You know, all those, you know. Yeah. So I, I started this world came into this world when basic was there. The punching cards were already, you know, right. long gone from the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Came into the space when when I was doing basics. And I just remember just buying myself a book. Again, I was like 10 years old or something like that. Or maybe I got a book from my parents at that time. And I remember just writing the codes, just just going through the scripts, typing it in and just seeing what happened. What's ha- what happens? 
and then trying again, then try to change something. And that I remember loving it. And then the years went by. My family actually could not afford myself a new uh, a new computer while I was in my teenager days. And I kind of moved away from writing code and computers and computer games and all of that. And so when I came back, so when I first came back into the computer world, if you want to call it, actually did not come back necessarily as a software developer. I came back as a graphic designer. So I, I learned how to, how to play with Photoshop. Right. At that time, it was also freehand, you know, but I must admit that I was just, okay, I was not talented. That was not my talent. Uh, but I kind of knew how to do things. Yeah. Kind of knew how to move things around until the point where I realized, okay, that I need to go back to software development, started learning it by myself the first couple of years. And then I fell in love mm. again, but. And then the passion drove you forward to do yes, fun stuff. I, yeah, I love that. Now in Israel, what's unique about, uh, and I'm not saying everybody's like that. You know, everybody's uh, each individual is its own being, right? So they, they have their own background. But there is there is something about coming from Israel with this entrepreneur uh, spirit, because they it starts. <laughs> it's actually maybe not that flattering when I'm going to say it, but. It, it, they don't teach you order in school. They teach you chaos. Mm. Okay. And what I'm trying to say by that is that they, like almost everybody does what they want. Mm. Like you, you have a certain framework in which you work with, but you always encourage to break through, to change it, to challenge it. Always. It's like you've been, you're sitting in a classroom and you said you need to sit in a classroom, but you always encourage to find ways or find reasons why you should not be sitting in a classroom. Do you think you should not sit in that classroom? And if so, what are the alternatives that you propose for learning? What are the, the options that you feel that you can do? So you're constantly encouraged to think outside the box and change the existing reality of things. And this is, and this is something that I think is unique to Israel, but at least from the countries that I've been exposed to over the years, I can say it's very unique in just the way of, of life, right? It's a small right. country. Yeah. Everybody, a lot of people have their trauma from their, you know, whatever happened in Europe, the Holocaust. So everybody's some type of in a defense mode. They're trying to do, trying to get the best of whatever they can and trying to protect themselves. So you're constantly in the mode of, how do I improve myself constantly? You're never, you're never in a point where you sit still. You're constantly looking to change, innovate, think about, promote yourself, think outside the box. Where else can I go? Just that type of whatever happened in the, in the I will say, Jewish history really caused, planted a certain gene in, sure. in people thinking outside the box. Yeah, yeah. Just, just do it. And, and Israel is, with all the love, it's not an easy country always to live in. And you've got security issues, you've got yeah. issues, yeah. not in a tough, it's not in a pleasant neighborhood. And so you you add that historical aspect along with the current reality. And it just creates a certain melting pot that something constantly comes out of it. And so I think I was two of my first jobs after, you know, after the graphic designer <laughs> Engagement for me was really in the startup world of Israel. I started off, my first job was a software developer. It was actually a company that was semi-headquartered in Tel Aviv and semi-in LA. 
So that was also what, what got me exposed to more the American market okay. at that time. And so I've, I've learned really from the bottom, you can say, of the organization of how startups operates and what are the expectations and the way of life of the startups. And then my next job was more on a management level of a startup where I was still doing subcoding, still doing, but I had a, a staff of developers, staff of project managers, staff of team leaders, and I had to manage them all. And I also traveled a lot in Europe at that time for that job. And so I had to work with other startups pretty much all over Europe, right? A lot of big organizations, small organizations, startups, and I got a lot of that. So I was really right. groomed in that environment. And when I relocated here, I brought something with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something. I hope I brought something with me. <laughs> I love how you explained and kind of detailed the educational focus in Israel, because as you were saying that, I'm thinking to myself, I've had this exact conversation with one of my friends who's from another country as well. And we talk about the, the education system. We both have sons that are in high school here and uh, we talk about their education experience and and it is i would say almost the exact opposite you will think this way <laughs> here's here's the box this is how you do this math and and there's no other there's no encouragement to as you define what was happening in Israel, there's no chaos. They don't want chaos. They're doing everything they can to kind of stomp yeah, down chaos, right? And it's very unique. It starts, <laughs> again, it's for good and for bad, right? I'm, I mean, I'm not saying that it's only a perfect thing, but it it's, it's just a way of, it just it starts off with, you know what, I'm going to describe you a situation where, you know, here I have, my kids went to school here. All my kids were born here. So mm. I have three of them. And I love them. And, you know, but I remember going to taking them to school in the morning and, you know, they need to form a line. Right. Right. In order to get into the class. Right. And the line is very clear. You don't push. You you, you stay where you are and right. you wait until the teacher calls you yep. and then you walk in very nicely, politely and in an organized manner. In Israel, forget <laughs> Forget about it. There's nobody <laughs> in the world. Listen, if you're not going to push yourself into the classroom, you're not going to get in. And you have a time to get in. Otherwise, the door is going to get shut and you won't get in. And, and then you got to come up with the reason why you thought that you cannot be in the classroom by that time. Uh. But you got to push and pull. And you got there's no lines. There's no waiting. You just just take charge and find your seat and it just that's that's what i'm saying by this chaos right just right not, it starts off from this young age of you got to push yourself forward if you want to get where you want to go right uh, and i think this is very it's it's <laughs> as a parent it's different from what i've seen and experienced as a child yeah versus what i'm seeing here in uh, in the states again i live in new jersey so maybe it's not like that in every state I'm not saying it's, it's an American thing. And maybe it's only in my school where I live that it's the same ones, but I, it's, it's very much of a difference between the two places. Again, I'm not saying what's better, what's worse. Just say, this is the situation. Yeah. Well, we'll let people, I guess, make their yeah. own choices, but definitely the encouragement to think outside of the box is, I think, a benefit. I think that is incredibly important because, uh, and what I try to tell my kids is because the world they're growing up in 
really has no boundaries, right? I mean, they are competing and will be interacting with people in Cleveland, in Tel Aviv, in Baghdad, in London, everywhere, right? And so their world really has no boundary. And so you need to be thinking outside of your little environment here and and really begin to question why and how can you and where can we take this and, and really get... Whether you're being entrepreneurial or not, I think is not really the point, but it's encouraging that real independent thought because from that, this is my belief anyway, is that from that, real innovation will begin to take hold in thought yeah. and ideas and and development. And I can tell you from my, um, my own personal experience through all the companies that I've worked for or the companies that I was the owner you know, I've always used global workforce, always. I mean, from since whenever I remember myself, even 20 years ago, 25 years ago, always use global workforce. Again, there's different regions in the world where it's better to use certain skill set than others. But in and it's it's so for me it was more like like a small village, right, of the world, right? And you can use talent from different places in the world right. and utilize them for for your needs. And this is something that I um I had a lot of conversations about that with friends, family, with other coworkers, with the other people in the past. Everybody's that advocating for remote work. And I know that there's a lot of debates online and social media, remote remote versus hybrid versus in the office versus this versus that. And, and I'm not going to start the debate here, but I just want to say one thing about the remote work and people have to keep that in mind, right? That it's all good to work remote, but just keep in mind and this world keeps getting smaller and smaller. You got to be the best that you can be in the field that you are operating in. Because if you will not, there's someone that is that can make, especially, let's say, especially in the American market, okay? Right, right. And especially where we are right now. If you're not going to be the best that you can or the best there is, if there is someone that is just as good as, as, good as you are, or even better than you, and is in a different place in the world, that their cost, their compensation is less than yours, you're going to have a hard time. Yeah, You're really going to have a hard time. And and especially, I tell you, we are in the tri-state area. It's one of the more expensive areas in the, in the States. Mm. You know, even if you find someone from, I don't know, more inland, in the US, you can find people that are that cost less to do the same type of a sure. job and to do same quality or even better. Yeah. So you gotta always so if you if you are into this remote remote thing, just keep in mind you gotta be the best of the best of the best version of yourself if you wanna be or if you wanna stay relevant in the market. Otherwise, you better think of a different work mode yeah, that brings yeah. some other qualities that uh, remote work cannot bring. Yeah, well, that's what I try to tell my kids as well. Is you're you're competing with millions and billions of people. It's not people in Cleveland. It's not yeah. the people in your yeah. high school. It's you know you are. It is a worldwide adventure, and you've yeah. got to set yourself up so that you would be distinguishable from others unique you have to be and i think to your point you have to be the best that you can be and make yourself stand out in whatever way that that can be so 
See, we could talk just hours. I'm so fascinated yeah. about your experience in Israel. I, this conversation. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could go on and on about that. Well, the, let's talk about, so let's fast forward to today, or really, I should say 2018. You came upon, and I think you even mentioned this when you're describing your award-winning website with Amazon. That's probably really where the seed was planted in regards to um, home furnishings and home goods. And then it really kind of blossomed in with Home Roots. And people, you can go check it out, homeroots.co, that's .co. And so tell us about Home Roots. How did you decide all right, let's launch this thing. And what is it? Because it's different, right? Yeah, a little true. different offering. Yeah. So since since I started my uh, employment, my project with Toys R Us, up to the point of home roots, um, I was a lot in the, I was mainly operating or living and breathing in the e-commerce world of B2C, business to consumer, D2C, direct to consumer. It's basically the same thing just different acronyms. So I've been operating a lot of this, but I always thought, and especially after this web store came along, I said, okay, I I get the direct-to-consumer world. I get the solutions that are out there, but now I want to do some wholesale. After doing, so almost doing 15 years of direct-to-consumer, I feel like I want to do more of wholesale. I really want to do more wholesale. I wanted to go one step backward in in the supply chain. And I was looking for a platform that, I can actually sell my products on. And I came to the conclusion that there isn't. <laughs> there isn't such a platform. And the only way for me, if I want to do wholesale, is to go to trade shows and exhibit there. Now, I've attended many trade shows. I've also done exhibiting in the past myself. But I was looking for a digital solution. So I knew that I want to get into the B2B world. I knew that I want to get into the wholesale. The question was, okay, where, what what will I go next? What will I do? So the first, I started more on the housewares, sports, beauty, all those other things that I had experience with in previous lives, in previous um, categories that I've worked at. But I remember one day, a good friend of mine had invited me to High Point Show, which is in North Carolina, and said to me, okay, right. listen. And he knew me from the e-commerce world. I said, listen, you know, started this new business. I, I started as a, as a VP of business development in this new company. I want to do a lot of wholesale, but everybody's here, our sales reps. I feel like they're going to retire soon. I don't want to rely on them. There's no, just, just come over. Just tell me what you think. And I remember flying over and I sat there more like a fly on the wall for like four, five days, actually. And I don't know if anybody been in High Point, North Carolina, but the show there is is not like a typical trade shows. It's like you're literally walking in blocks in the streets. It's just, it's like a city. And every showroom is, every every company has its own showroom. So you walk between stores in a city and, and that's how you walk the show. You, you use, you know, they have golf carts, they have like shuttles, it's, it's a whole thing. It's a huge, huge, huge. I was going to say, how big is that? The floor must it's be huge. huge. It's huge. It's not It's not a typical event that, that you go to. So I remember spending them and we went to different conversations you know, through different exhi- exhibitors, one after the other. And pretty much the conversations were the same between the reps, between the designers, between the store owners, e-commerce folks. Everybody had the same conversation. 
And you could see how the younger generation, younger by younger, I'm saying my age at that time, and a little bit younger, maybe even two, three, five years older than me at that time, how they were very frustrated because we grew into, we were in a hybrid, I'm calling myself the hybrid world when we grew up in a non-digital environment. So we know how to operate in a non-digital environment. Um, the younger generation, they only know digital space, right? They don't know how things work otherwise. They don't, they don't, they didn't grow up into that. And you got the older generations, which more like my parents' generation, which for them it was non-digital space. So somehow my generation really not find themselves in in the space and they were looking for a change. And I remember coming back from the show, I said, okay, I know I want to do B2B. I just found my vertical. I just found the industry that I need to get involved in. And actually I planted it and I worked on that for three years before I actually launched the platform in late 2018. So I did a lot of grunt work on the back end with research, market, vetting suppliers, vetting buyers, trying to prep things on the back end, building up the platform. Initially I coded it myself. And then after a while I brought on board software developers to help me out. And then uh, we launched. And so the aspect, the whole purpose of Homeroots, okay, is to provide a platform for small business, medium-sized businesses around the globe that are selling furniture and home decor items to get into the American market, right? And give them the platform to start playing and selling and obtaining a market share, in North America by getting their products sold by retailers locally. That's that's the essence of it. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other things in between, but that's that's the major essence of, of Homeroots. So it's interesting because as I'm listening you describe Homeroots, because I guess maybe dig into the platform a little bit, because I know you have customers... And so when I say you have home roots customers that are home stagers, real estate developers, but you also have like other big retail stores like Home Depot and Lowe's and right. Ashley Furniture. And so can I go to Lowe's and like, hey, I want to buy, I don't know, a outdoor pick, but a patio set maybe for my space out here. Would I find products via home yeah. routes that are listed on Lowe's? Yeah. You you can actually go now on, on Lowe's.com or Home Depot.com and you if you search for home routes, you will see our products. Mm. They're being they're being sold. And they're actually products that are manufactured. Manufacturers is basically have basically um offered us mm. to sell to those retailers. The whole thing about our platform is that we we work with factories all over the world, right? And right. we give the platform for the factories to get their products inland. So we get their products brought into the US, right? And then listed, list those products on our platform. So they have like the backend system where they can right. actually upload all the specs of the products. Right. So they do that. And the moment once they've done completing it, we're then taking all this product information specification and then we syndicate that to different retailers and then those retailers then offer that for sale to the end consumer and of course if if those we also deal with a lot of companies that they don't have retailer you know 
websites like home stagers, right. designers, property management. They don't always have sites, but they can still come to our website, register or apply to become a buyer. We just make sure it's it's a legit, you know, registered company in the state. And then they can browse our site, very similar to any other consumer site. So our goal is really to make the shopping experience, the B2B shopping experience, similar to B2C. Got it. That's really the thing. Nice, nice. Also lacking in the industry. You you can imagine like how how procurement um, used to be and to a large extent is is still if you want to buy in wholesale the whole purchase order RFU this whole process is just very daunting mm. I would say so we're just you know you gotta buy you need to buy something not a problem you log in like any other customer any other website like Amazon or whatever you go you search for whatever you want you add it to your card you check out and boom mm-hmm. then you know you know when it's coming out to you it's going to get delivered you know the date the range you know right right very very simple interesting uh so if i you know, randy was manufacturing building some great rocking chair i could list with you as a seller and then you're going to help go pitch it or make it available, I should say, to the other, the buyers that are your, your clients or home root clients, yeah. right? Ah. So yeah. I could, I could we'll still end up in, in Home Depot or Lowe's if I, yeah, if I worked at it. So you have then through your, this model then, and as we were talking before we started recording, so you have your own distribution centers, Home Roots. You have one in Cleveland here. So I said, hey, yes. you're going to stop by Cleveland. We could have gotten together. Uh, uh, yeah. Of this distribution network, how many centers do you have? So right now we have three. So we have okay. one in New Jersey, one in uh, Ohio, Cleveland, and we have one in LA. Yeah. LA. Uh, I was going to say at least one in the West Coast, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Got to be there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love the idea that you have your manufacturers that they have to have their product in the u.s certainly for a lot of different reasons so that is terrific i think we had found as well and this was from i think a news article a news release from new jersey so this is back in march that says home roots is raising I'm looking at this number and I can't decide whether it was a mistake and I didn't ask our team whether it's like, was that, it's either 12 million or 12 billion. So I can't figure out that I've got a lot of zeros here and I'm like, is that missing a zero or is that supposed to be the sense number? (laughs) Not 12 billion. Okay. So you're, we're raising 12 million then in new funding. We started the process. Yes. Okay. All right. So I, How's that going? I guess so. This was back in March on the announcement. Here we are in September. Yes. So we're 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 halfway there. All right. Halfway there. Not entire complete. We still got work to do. Uh, and we actually, as as we went through the process, we realized that we don't need as much right now for our operation. So we scaled it back. But again, the the whole purpose of that is to fuel the company and move faster, hmm. right? And get to our get to uh, you know fulfill our dreams sooner rather than later yeah that's pretty much what uh what it's up it's all about but yeah we actually scaled back we didn't we realized we didn't need uh, 
that much of money after certain development that took place between April, May, June of this year. Well, that's pretty exciting though. So congratulations for even Thank you. for getting halfway and kind of wrapping that wrapping that around. I am kind of curious, what led you to I guess maybe this specific category? So you've 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 kind of been in this home goods, home furnishings for long before home roots, but why that particular one? Was it, you know, was there something that led you to that or you just kind of happened to fall into it and you've stuck with it because you've learned it? So, as I mentioned, some, what planted the seed for me, what put it as, as one of the candidate categories was my first visit to High Point, right? So that was the first thing that kind of made me think more about that category. And as I was researching that category more and more, I realized that this is really a problematic category. One, because it's very antiquated or more antiquated than most other verticals, retail verticals that exist out there, right? The way it's been sold to the mass or the way it's been sold to the retailers in such a way that one, it's not, it's, there's, there are no certain standards that the industry is falling. Everybody does whatever pretty much they want. It's very fragmented, meaning you you cannot really identify a leader or a group of leaders in this industry. So there's no common leader. No one no one really leads that organization or holds a majority of a market share. And then it's a very difficult industry to operate with, operate in that many companies actually don't want to deal with. And mainly it's because of the logistics. Right? The logistics of it is is difficult. If you just look at warehouses, not every warehouse want to deal with furniture. Actually, majority of them do not want to deal with furniture, right? which makes it very difficult to operate in. Then you got yourself the logistics aspect of shipping, transportation. Can I ask you, can I interrupt just a second? Yeah. No. Well, why wouldn't they want to have? I'm trying to think of like, well, it's big, but why do they care? If, you, if it's a warehouse, it's, you know, you're paying per square foot. So, you know, as the seller or the leaseholder of a warehouse. You'd be like, you know, I've got a couch and it's taken up a lot of space in my warehouse that I'm paying X, you know, per square foot. But why on the other end, why wouldn't they want furniture? Sometimes it's the equipment. Sometimes it's Mm. the number of people that needs to handle it. There is more tendency to cause damages if the warehouse personnel is not equipped or not trained to handle it. And and just it's very hard to store furniture on multiple racks. Right? You're not going to start throwing a furniture on the fifth or seventh, you know, yeah. level with a forklift, trying to kind of you know take it right, in and out. Right, of the, right. It's just not something that you're risking that causing damage to the merchandise. There's a lot of risk. So if your warehouse is not equipped for that, you usually don't want to deal with that. Right. Then you got the fact that it's bulky, it's heavy. Sometimes if you something get returned back, now you need more than one person right. to carry this furniture. And what do you do with that? It's just or even if you need to dispose it, it's not that where are you going to dispose it? It right. doesn't go into your average dumpster. In some cases, you you are not allowed because of certain material in the furniture, you're not allowed to dump it regularly sure, like sure. other things. It has right. to go through special dumping. Many warehouses just they just don't want to deal with that. It's just too much headache. Let right. them get the case packs of things that they want to move, like small piece items. They can palletize them easily and just in and out, in right. and out. Right. Nobody. Will. So I don't blame warehouses that they don't want to deal with that. But that's a challenge. 
Then you got the trucking industry. Um, I love the trucking industry, but I would love more if they can help <laughs> with more with furniture. Uh, there aren't that many carriers that specialize in handling furniture. Everybody can tell you that they will handle furniture, but I can tell you that there's also a risk of damages. They tend to damage their merchandise because they don't know how to handle it within their own lanes. Mm. That's one issue. The second issue is that it's not that easy or straightforward to book a shipment with a truck. It's really not. And actually, the average e-commerce guy or retail store owner, they don't know how to book a shipment with a truck. They really don't. But they need the goods to move out, move from wherever it is to wherever the customer needs it. And since you got that gap knowledge with handling the trucks, many just say, okay, you know what? I just don't need it. I don't want to deal with that. So who's who's going to deal with that? That's a big question. On one hand, you got the manufacturers or you got the importers who says, I don't want to deal with the trucking because if there is any damages or any scheduling pickups issues, it's not on me. I, I don't want to deal with that. So the suppliers, the vendors don't want to deal with that. The retailers don't know how to do it. Right? The simple majority of them really don't know how to do it. And then you got a point of, okay, there is a gap here. I don't want to do it. I don't want to touch it. So this is also where Home Roots comes into the play, where we're actually our system knows how to right. communicate automatically with the different trucking companies and the warehouse systems. And so we schedule those pickups, we coordinate the pickups, we coordinate the deliveries, and we make it easier for both sides actually to, to transact. And we also take the responsibility, you know, in case there's any issues with the trucking companies, we take full responsibility for any delays, damages, shortages, mm. misdeliveries, whatever. It's on us. Mm. We're going to take care of it. Um, and so it makes the buyers feel more confident, more comfortable with actually buying the goods from us because they know they don't have to worry about it. And the suppliers are happy because for them, it's an actionable buyer that actually produce something and don't give them the hassle. Right. I don't want to deal with trucks. It's yours, your merchandise. You got to make sure it's delivered. So all this drama is gone, dissolves, and we'll just make it easier for both sides to just, hey, you like the product? Right, uh, right. Well, it sounds like, it. yeah, it sounds like you've really have created a solution for both of those sides of the, the transaction, so to speak, and the B2B in that allowing each of them to stay in their lane, do the things that they do best, right? Let the manufacturers like make it, let the retailers sell it and you'll take care of the in-between, right? The, the connecting right. point. So, you know, that good for you for really defining a true problem and creating a true solution, I guess, in it. So you've been doing e-commerce and for, for so long. Yeah. Years, 20 plus years. Um, and I can only imagine it. I just had a guest on. I think, actually, I don't even think the show has aired yet. And we were talking about, and again, in today's world and post-pandemic, that barriers to entry in starting a business is almost nothing these days. I could start a new business before I go home this afternoon if I wanted to. <laughs> Right. And yeah. I could have a website up if I wanted to do an e-commerce, sell t-shirts, I could have a website. I could have an LLC, a website up and selling before six o'clock if I wanted to here today. The, the barrier to that is almost not even there aside from my time. 
And so a lot of people, I'm sure, have and will kind of jump into this e-commerce pool. Now, you are doing it in a much bigger way than anything that I would probably even attempt to do. Um, And I'm sure that there's all kinds of aspects in running an e-commerce brand that tends to be underestimated, I guess is where I'm trying to circle this question around. Can you give an example or maybe explain some of those things that people, and like in your particular experience, just don't haven't yeah. thought about or underestimated the, listen, this is an issue. You have to think, give some brain power behind this. Yes. I can tell you, I, I had many conversations. Many people told me, okay, we're going to start up an Amazon business. Or I like to go on, hey, I'm, you know, I just set up my Shopify store. It's, it's so simple. Why you've been talking about? <laughs> Why you're saying it's a little bit more effort? Why you need to, need to work hard? Hey, see, I got my website up and running, you know, before end of the day. And they're right. And you said it's pretty much very much right. It's, a, it's not that difficult to launch an e-commerce, a fully operational e-commerce site in a matter of hours. It's really not that big of a deal. I really not a good way. You may want to learn some few things. You may tweak some few things, but again, you're not looking at a large amount of effort right. in order to establish yourself. Right. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I didn't say I would do it successfully. I just said I could do it. Now, whether now I, that's a good point. Yes. Now whether, that's a good point. <laughs> whether I sold anything. Now that's a whole nother question. <laughs> now that's a whole other question. Yes. And and what what many newcomers put this way need to be aware of is that it's not just about launching a website or or starting a business in Amazon. At the end of the day, you've got to find products to sell. And that's a task. It's not an easy task. You're going to find a lot of gurus out there and different Facebook groups that's going to tell you how to find the perfect product that you can make millions of. Guess what? There are millions of others who are in the same groups have watched similar YouTubes or similar... Facebook streaming, uh, you know, um, posts and whatever it is that they're all going after the perfect product. It's I'm not saying you should not, but I'm saying it's not easy as it may sound. It's very difficult and you need to know how to go about it. So that's one challenge, how to find the products that consumers really want. And then how do you promote those products in the e-commerce world. Again, like yourself, there are millions who are trying to promote products. Usually promoting products does not come for free. You need to put in some money aside for marketing. Now there's different marketing techniques, right? There's pure advertising, whether that's on social media or on Google or in different marketplaces such as Amazon or Walmart or whatever. There's the affiliate marketing, there's the you know influencer marketing. You got to pick your lane based on the niche of products that you're actually trying to sell and be creative about it. The thing is that what I do recommend for people who want to start their own e-commerce business, first of all, you got to put some money aside. Put a few thousands of dollars aside for identifying products and spend some marketing money towards trying to promote them in, you know, promote them into the market and see whether this product has some type of a demand. Is there a consumer that is really interested in purchasing the product? Otherwise, you never know. It's not going to work. So I recommend for people not to buy large quantities of merchandise just because you like a certain product. The fact that you like doesn't mean that others do. You mean there's no certainty that my 
coffee mug with dogs <laughs> is going to sell. <laughs> well, unless you want to buy from yourself, there's no, <laughs> there isn't. I'm sorry to say there is right. It's and it's tough. Yeah. And, and oh. I'm not saying, uh, and it's easier. It is easier to find products that has potential on Amazon because the way that Amazon set themselves up, right. There's also some good ways to find Google. They have different trends and there's different tools. Uh, for finding potential products that may, may, may sell. But you need to get some few samples right. before you put a lot of money into inventory. Get some few samples and test things out in the market. Put some money behind on advertisements and trying to promote it and see whether it can yield some returns. Now, don't expect that you're going to see all the money back. Don't expect that every product is going to work. Actually, the majority of your products will not work. But what you do need, if you're really into it, if you're really passionate about it, then you should not give up after the first, the second, or even the third product. Just keep on trying and you'll find your angle. And it's enough that you find one home run, going back to baseball. There you go. Uh, it's enough that you find one that you're good. Now you have yeah. a baseline. Right. Now you can actually start. I also recommend, it's also not that easy, but I also recommend trying to get in touch with a wholesaler that their products have produced evidence that they have demand in the market. So if you are able to become a customer of that wholesaler, now you have products that can actually sell and you can win some of the sales in the market that can give you some money to then go on this new adventure of building up your own products, building up your own brand and give it a try out there in a space with what sells and what's not. Right. Again, that's in case you want to work in the DTC world. Right. Now, you want to work in the B2B world and happens to be you're in a furniture or home decor space, you go to Homebrew. <laughs> yeah, you just we take care of it. You just right? give, give Gil a call and uh, he'll yeah, take care of it. We take care of it. That's we, good. You yeah, just, you yeah. just get, get, get us the samples. There we go. Uh, well, that's good advice. So that's, uh, you know, and probably to sum that up, even though the barrier of entry is fairly small, you can't underestimate you know, identifying that, that killer product and as well promotion and marketing, you still have to set yourself apart. The world doesn't need another coffee mug with dogs on it. And, you know, and so, yes, yes. I tell you one, one more piece of advice that I have for uh, many entrepreneurs for starting and what mostly you're going to need to spend your time. Again, that's my, that's my piece of advice. If someone really want to be on top of it, is to learn from others how to do the marketing piece or learn from how to, mm. how to identify what potential products may be good. You have to learn it, but by all means, you need to do it yourself. Right. Don't let others do it for you. They're never going to do it as good as you. Um, and they're not, never going to be on top of it as much as you are. And the fact that you actually going to do it yourself, you're going to become better at it. Every time you're going to come better and better and better up to the point where you're going to actually be able to fine tune your offering in the market. You're going to be able to be successful about that. And then once you have a baseline, then it's also easy for you to bring someone underneath like a virtual assistant or someone that are going to receive the instructions from you. And they can now do the grunt work of the day-to-day activity with your supervision. So I really recommend for people to do it hands-on, like learn from others. Don't try right, to learn right. everything by yourself up front because it's going to cost you a lot of money. 
try to learn from others, try to listen in. But at the end of the day, don't don't let others do the work for you. Just at least at the beginning, the first product, second product, do it yourself. Mm. And, and that way you learn the whole scope of what it is to sell online. All right. Good advice. All right. For those yes. thinking about e-commerce anyway. All right. So, Gil, here we go. It's that time. And it's time for the seventh inning stretch. Ah, the seventh inning stretch. Before I hit the record button, I did ask Gil, do you like baseball? And it's like, well, I've I've been to a couple of Yankees games, so <laughs> so that puts you in the ballpark anyway. So that's good. All right. Okay, so here Yes. So here we are. This is the time here. I get to ask you some fun baseball trivia here. I know I have listeners that tune into the show only for this particular aspect of the show because they're always fascinated by it. So the research team tried to dig in, find out a little bit about you, a little bit about home roots, and they came up with this question I thought was actually pretty interesting because even I even learned a lot of stuff. I'm a big baseball fan, and I learn a lot of stuff when we throw these things out. Baseball in Israel. Did you know there was such a thing? Yes. Ah, yes. Very good. Yes, yeah. I did. Yes. Um, but it's relatively a recent thing. Yes. Yes. So the first, what we'll say, um, professional or maybe even semi-professional baseball field was built in 1979 in Israel. Wow. Yes. And I, I did not know. I'm not even going to, I'm going to try, I'll, I'll try to <laughs> pronounce this. So please forgive me. Built in Kibbutz Kazer. Kibbutz Gazer. Is that Gazer? Maybe yes. G e z e r. How how do you spell it again? G e z e r. It's Gazer. 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 That is where the Yarkin Sports Complex. Oh, I can tell you, it wasn't Tikva Israel. It wasn't as big. It wasn't a big thing. Yeah, it was more of um basketball and soccer yeah and then judo 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 well right now right now there are 13 um uh, teams teams in the israeli association of baseball the iab so there you go about that but that's not your question that's just a little bit of background so to give you an idea right we got baseball it's happening in israel it's not that old here's your question has there ever been an Israeli major league baseball player? You know what? I really don't know the answer. Um, well, this is pretty easy. You got a 50, 50 chance here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'll, I'll go for yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. A home run. There you go. That's a hit. Yes. So in uh, the name? gentleman's name, it. yes, is Dean. Kramer, K-R-E-M-E-R. Kramer? He's not an American by any chance? No. So he grew up in Israel. He played, let me say, I'll give you a little background. I'm 2015 Israeli senior national team pitcher. Came the first Israeli selected in the Major League Baseball draft. So that was in 2015. He decided, so he was in, uh, must have been, when we say... Israeli senior national team. So it was when he was in high school because he, he was drafted by the Padres in 2015 
turned it down, decided to go with his college commitment, played for uh, UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, here in the States. After playing with them, he then was drafted by the Dodgers. And then in 2019, he reached last AAA. And then in 2020, Kramer made his debut for the Baltimore Orioles as a pitcher, becoming the first Israeli citizen to pitch in the major leagues. Wow. There we go. Impressive. Yes. So impressive. You always seek to find info that's enlightening and stump our. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's a, as, as a kid, as a kid, baseball in Israel, it was something that we just watch on TV, mainly from the, you know, what was happening here, right? The major right, right. baseball league. Right. And in Israel, it wasn't that, uh, it wasn't played that much at right, least right. not on official or professional manner as far as i remember yeah it's good it's good yeah. to, uh, to it's, see it. it's building it's coming it's on its way yeah yeah no yeah, no it's, yeah. it should be yeah there we go all right well let's get back into it play ball so well, i am sure as you know small business owners i'm a small business owner we have our ups we have our downs right we smacked with the pandemic right we have our challenges right I'm sure you have had those challenges as well with home roots. Can you tell us a story, maybe one of those times, those challenges or hard times that you had to face when you first started your journey with home roots? How did you overcome it? So I remember you know, going back to our advice on e-commerce, right? But you can have the same advice for anybody who's, who wants to start a business and sell something somewhere. Okay, someone. And the first thing is that you need to find someone who's going to supply you with the products that you're interested in selling. Right? Or someone who's going to be willing to do business with you right? on terms that you deem to be acceptable okay, or fair or something that you can afford. And the challenge that I had with Homeroads at the beginning is because that I got a lot of no's. Every time I went to, my business was different. Like you said, the world didn't need another mug, hold, mug holder with, I don't know, some uh, puppy dogs, uh, puppy puppy eyes on it, right? But it's just, I was looking for, have a different business, a different business model. And when I went to pitch my business to suppliers, domestically, overseas, I got a lot of no's. No, we're not interested. No, thank you. Not for us. No, we don't understand what you want. No, we don't understand what you do. Thank you. Bye. Bye. No, no, no. Bye, bye, bye. So th that was pretty much majority of my, um, that, that was my journey at the beginning. It was just, just a no. It's pretty uh, deflated. It is. It's. <laughs> I could tell you that if, if I was not doing it for the passion and for my belief in, in doing it, I would most likely break already. You, you're thinking, okay, you know, you start off, you're launching your business, you're registering it, right? You're so happy. You keep the registration of the company, you're kind of framing it, you can frame it, you're proud of it. You are a business owner officially. And then reality hits you. And then you need suppliers. Doesn't matter. You need customers, obviously, but you need suppliers. And you're only going to be as good as the suppliers that you work with. And you need someone who's going to be willing to supply. Now, some industries, some verticals, it's not that big of a deal, right? The suppliers that you need, you know, in the software industry, yeah, suppliers, 
it's really more whoever's going to be willing to um, view the cloud, host your computer or your host your website or servers or whatever it is. It's easier to actually get it going. But if you're in the CPG world, you really need tangible goods. And so it's tough. So you got to be able to perfect your pitch to suppliers. So my, my piece of advice on this, first of all, to explain yourself in such a way that they can understand what you really want. And I realized that the problem was not with them. At least I want to say that, that it wasn't with them. It was about more about my pitch and how did I, or the way that I explained the business to them. It just, they didn't understand or that it was too early for that time. Right. And once I started tweaking my pitch and once I started tweaking the audience that I was pitching it to, business started flowing, suppliers starting to come Mm -hmm. on board. Mm -hmm. So it's about what you say and who do you, who are you going to say it to? Mm -hmm. Two important things. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that was my experience at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, And and third advice is don't give up. Right. Don't give up. As, As long as you got some money in your pocket. Don't give up. Well, that's all good advice. Absolutely. You know, keep yes, keep pushing definitely. on. Let me tell you, e-commerce, doing business online, people are so accustomed to seeing reviews, right? So I could go, I could look up a business, I could search for a business. They pop up with a little map and they, they got you know, 35 five-star reviews or whatever, right? Two one-star reviews believe in comments all over left and right. <laughs> and it's a challenge. It's a challenge for the local small business because they get these things. They want clients, customers to leave reviews. At the same time, you know, they always struggle like the negative review or a one-star review. I can't imagine in your world and as you are massively, you know, platform that you are distributing, from an online sales platform, how do you handle reviews? How do you handle, I guess, you know, if you look at them, how do you respond to them? What kinds of thoughts do you have with that that you might be able to share with other folks just, you know, that are running their local small businesses and handling their reviews? So I think the first couple of reviews are the most important ones. Right, that will start off with that. So I think I think whatever you sell, you got to make sure that you got to think in the, in the future mindset and not just current mindset. For example, if you know that you got a customer who's upset about something, doesn't it really doesn't matter what? Go above and beyond what you can just to satisfy their um, their needs and what they're asking for, because. If you're waiting on reviews and those are among your first customers, if they're going to badmouth you online, it's hard to recover, especially at the beginning. You know, if you're already 200, 200 reviews in or 100 reviews in and then somebody says something bad, it's not nice. It's not the end of the world. I'm not going to bring you down to me. But if you get your first one, two, three reviews and they're all bad, that's, the game that's, is over. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> the game is over. It's tough to recover from yeah. that. It's very, it's almost impossible. It's very tough to recover. So you got to go beyond and, and beyond what you may deem to be even fair. There's no fair mm-hmm. here. You gotta you gotta make the customer happy. If it means that you lose money, lose money. Think about that as it's not necessarily as losing money. Think about it as like a marketing 
investment. Right. You really have to think long term, not just the short term, one transaction, one review. You really have to think long term. Am I in this just today or am I want to be in business a year from now? Yes. And, and I think you, you have to, especially at the beginning while you're still small, it's still most like you takes care of the customer directly. And if it's not you who takes care of the customer directly and you just launch your business, then I recommend you to do take care of your customer by yourself and not let somebody else do it. Because the first couple of reviews, the first couple of feedbacks are the most important ones. And if a customer is going to be happy, they're going to tell their friends, but you don't want them to tell their friends. Somebody once told me, I remember when I was in um, an economic class or I don't know what social study class. I don't remember what it was, but I remember the ratio between somebody says something good about you to something sad about you is one to 10, which means on every one, on every 10 good customers that are happy, it's enough that one will not be. Mm. And that just wipes out all the 10 good ones. That's it. And so you don't want that one. You don't want it. So you got you to gotta handle your customers. Reviews are so, super important. Mm. So in our case, in our platform, if we do get bad reviews on specific products, we tend to take them down. Mm. And we take the product down. Product. We take yeah. the product down. Yeah. We, take, we completely take it offline. And then we give the supplier, we give the manufacturer an opportunity to address the concerns of the reviews. Right. Maybe sometimes it might be just misunderstanding. Sometimes, mm. So we give some room for a dialogue. But at the end of the day, you know, if it's a production issue or whatever it is, then we may need to take the product down entirely mm. and keep the customer happy in mm. different ways and maybe offer some alternatives to them. That's the way that we tackle that in our platform. Right. But if you operate outside of our platform, I will say that if somebody left you a bad review, try to reach out to them. Try to listen, try to reason with them. There is no guarantee that they will ever change it, but at least you got to try. Right. It's super important at the beginning. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah. And again, just emphasize as well the points you're making is you just have to think long term, not just this particular instance. Yeah. So, um, so you've got all this new money flowing into home roots. <laughs> you've got great ideas, obviously, passionate about what it is that you're doing. What's on the horizon for Home Roots? What What do you see around the corner? What's the next great step? Okay, so there's a there's a couple. Of, there's a lot of things. Not not everything I can disclose. Sure. But I tell you one of the things that we do want to help. We want to make it more affordable for factories to bring their goods into the U.S. Very simple. We want to bring the merchandise here, and spare the needs for retailers here to go overseas. We want everything here as much as possible and bring the markets here. And we want to let the people and the companies operate domestically as if they were originally a domestic uh, registered company. So that's, that's really one of our major initiatives right now is to make sure that factories can import their goods in an affordable way, seamless way. And, um, just make it easier to, for, for factories to operate here. We believe that, you know, as far as there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously some factoring, manufacturing that is done here in the, in the States, but it's still very much small. And I predict that it will stay relatively small just because of the workforce. 
the cost of living, everything else, and also the materials, uh, the raw materials, majority of them are not in the U.S. They have to be imported elsewhere from elsewhere. Yeah, there's some few, you know, wood material stuff in Texas, for example. There's a few farms and stuff. The majority of it is really overseas. So we're we're working on that initiative. It's something that I can tell you that we're putting a lot of efforts into it. And then the next thing is we really want to help manufacturers that are having challenges with English still do business in the U.S., right? So imagine that you do not speak English that well. You still want to sell your product. You know how to sell your product. You got great products. Why should that be a limit? Why, why your language or the lack of knowledge of language should be a barrier for you to operate in here in the state? I mean, I'm coming from, you know, from that. No, I was an immigrant myself, right? Been a while. I've been here more for more than 20 years, but I know the issues. Right. I know the issues of coming from a different country and the challenges of getting acclimated. I'm thinking about a person who doesn't even live here, doesn't understand the, the local culture, doesn't understand the language, not operating in the same time zone. We want to make it easy for them. There's, there, there, there's still room here. There's still demand for their products. And if there is, like I believe there is, let them be successful. So it's like a, a lot yeah, of, some good initiatives, yeah. In the future, it's going to be on a global scale. Yeah. It's going to enable guys who are operating here in the States, go elsewhere and do the same. Other continents, to other countries, right. to other regions in the world where they don't have access to right now because they don't understand the language, they don't understand the culture, they don't even know how to start. They don't know, they don't know where to go. Not a problem. We're going to bridge it for them. We're going to make that bridge and we're going to make it easy. So it's not just inbound into the U.S., bringing everybody into the U.S., even though that's what we're focusing on right now. But in the future, it's going to be on a global scale. Everybody can sell anywhere. Mm-hmm. The talent will prevail. The quality will prevail. And if you got a good product with a good demand, good price, wherever you come from in the world and wherever you want to sell, has no should have no limits mm. to your capabilities. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Sounds like uh... More growth on the way for Home Roots. Yes, a lot of things. Yes. All right. So, Gil, here we are. We're at the uh, the bottom of the ninth, and you've talked about so much in so many different kind of aspects of operating a small business. But at the bottom of the ninth, you know, this is where we kind of ask all of our guests, what advice do you have for rookies in the game, right? So those starting out in business or those who have already have their business up and running, looking for some guidance. You've given so many nuggets of gold. You have more words you can share. Okay, so I've given some advice on the marketing, about how to start business, the products, what you have to, the suppliers, everything else. So I'll try to touch upon something totally different. All right, there we go. Let's touch on the accounting side of things. Okay, Digging back to the... Family roots to CPAs. Yes. Here we are. Yes. This is how it was brought. So I'm bringing all of that in. Yeah. Right or out. Full circle. Look at that. Um, pay attention to your books. I'm really serious about it. You know, at the beginning, it's tough. And what's more important is sales. You want the sales before anything else. But always keep in touch and keep a close look on what's happening in your books, on your own personal expenses, the, the company's expenses. Uh, different programs that you register with and over time you don't pay attention you're not using them anymore but yet you still pay for them on a subscription fee or whatever all those things at the end of the day 
takes away from your bottom line, which takes away from what you take home out of this business that you're building. So my, my piece of advice is spend some time on the books, record whatever you can. If you don't have the time, then again, you can always hire someone even overseas. You know, there are marketplaces such as Upwork mm. or um, Guru.com. There's other different platforms like that that you can find a global workforce and they can help you with some of the bookkeeping, some of the recording. So you don't have to spend the time. It's not an expensive workforce. It's super important. You got to pay attention to your expenses. You don't go over budget. Sometimes you don't pay attention. You know, you say, oh, okay, it's only 50 bucks a month. Ah, that's also another hundred bucks a month. Right. Ah, big deal. I'm selling $5,000 a month already. It gets to you. Yeah. Thanks. It's like a little nickel and diamond. All of a sudden you got no change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the small little thing that you don't pay attention that takes away from your own profits. And sometimes you don't even need them. You don't really need them. Right. So I, that's my piece of advice. Just pay attention to this, record it, make sure that you look at your P&L, look at your reports, understand the reports, know some financial acronyms. That's super important in my mm. opinion. Again, it's second to gen to sales generations because without sales, man, nothing else matters. Right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But 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 once you get through your sales cycle into yeah. emotion and you got it going, go back. This is what I call like the back office, protecting right. your base, making sure that it's solid and you're not um Without the intention, you think that like you're making a lot of money, and then you start looking at the books and say, "Oh, shoot, I'm actually not." So, <laughs> and you need to look at why and why am I not picking myself yeah. like fat salary at the end of the month? I own my own business. I don't have employees, yeah. or I, maybe I have one, two. How come I'm not? Yeah, that that's that's the that's the disappointing surprise. <laughs> like what? Yeah. What? Wow, very practical advice. I don't think we've ever had a guest that. That said, look at your books. Keep track of your books. Yes. <laughs> I love that. That was great advice. Well, listen, Gil, it's been so fun having you on the show. I've truly, really have enjoyed the conversation. I think I could talk with you for another hour just about growing up in Israel and education and entrepreneur as a as a whole so maybe we'll have to do part two of this conversation oh, another time i'll but, be more than happy to yeah yeah but thank you for being on the show and folks you can go connect with gil you can reach out to homeroots.co which is their website and they've got contact information there also you can hook up with Gil on LinkedIn, either on the Home Roots profile or Gil. What would do you have? A, do you know off the top of your head your LinkedIn profile? Yes. So if you search after LinkedIn, if you add Gil Bar Dash Lev, you can and find there me you there. Are. There you are. All right. Again, thanks, Gil. Really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. And folks, that's the ball game. Thanks for joining us today. If you like our show, please tell your friends, subscribe, and review. And as we like to say, we'll see you around the ballpark. Running the Bases with Small Businesses is brought to you by 38 Digital Market, a digital marketing agency committed to client growth with lead generation, higher conversions, and increased sales. Connect with us today at 38digitalmarket.com.